This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel of the New Book Network. I'm your host, Ritha Padgiri, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Melanie Heath. Melanie Heath is an Associate Professor of Sociology at McMaster University, where she is also an Associate Dean of Graduate Studies. She studies the politics of family, sexuality, and gender. She is the author of One Marriage Under God, the Campaign to Promote Marriage in America, 2012 New York University Press, the How-To of Qualitative Research, published in two editions, 2016 and 22, Sage, and Forbidden Intimacies, Transnational Regulation of Polygamies at the Limits of Western Tolerance, Stanford University Press 2023. Her work appears in sociology and interdisciplinary journals, including Gender and Society, Science, Sociological Perspectives, The Sociological Quarterly, Contact, Qualitative Sociology, and PLOS One. She is the president of RC32, Women, Gender, and Society, of the International Sociological Association, and the co-president of the Sociologists for Women in Society. Today, we are going to talk about her new book, Forbidden Intimacies, Transnational Regulation of Polychemies at the Limits of Western Tolerance, published by the Stanford University Press in 2023. Melanie, I welcome you to this discussion. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. And thank you so much for inviting me. Right. So let me begin by asking you your main motivation behind writing this book. Yeah, so um, this is a, a very good question, and um, I will answer it, I guess, with a little bit of history of my research uh, trajectory, which, so uh, my first book was on the politics of marriage promotion in the United States, and I was really interested in looking at why states were seeking to promote heterosexual marriage as a way to address um, all the different kinds of social problems and particularly seeking to address uh, poverty among single mothers. So marriage is a way to lift poor mothers out of poverty. And I found a real paradox in thinking about why states were promoting heterosexual marriage while also seeking to ban. Many of these states also were banning it um, for, for same sex or same gender couples. And so in, in thinking about efforts to strengthen, you know, heterosexual marriage as sort of a state effort itself, I began to think about, well, what, what role does monogamy play in that? And part of my thinking was motivated because just at that time, many um, shows on polygamy and plural marriage became very popular um, such as the reality show, uh, The Sister Wives, which aired in 2010. And this is a show that follows Cody Brown and his four wives who are Mormon fundamentalists. And I started to look into this and I found out that in Utah, there was this movement seeking to decriminalize polygamy, which uh, at that time was a third degree felony in the state. So I began to wonder, like, what does it mean to criminalize a type of family? 
And how are these various kinds of non-monogamies being regulated, specifically a, a non-monogamy like polygyny, which is seen as highly problematic and patriarchal? Now, I've given a lot of terms here, so let me just take a step back for a minute and define some of these terms. Uh, so non-monogamy is an umbrella term for uh, a practice of our philosophy on, of non-didactic intimate relationships uh, that do not follow the standards of monogamy. And one example of that is polyamory, which is the practice of engaging in multiple romantic relationships with the consent of all people involved. So my book is not so much dealing with polyamory, though I do address it some, but it's it's dealing more with um, polygamy, uh, which is an umbrella term uh, for multiple marriages. And specifically, I'm looking at polygyny, which is the marriage of one man with more than one woman. And so... So this is this this is the focus overall of the book is on this practice of polygyny, um, and my research really is engaging with a broader body of research on how states define themselves based on regulating certain kinds of intimacies. I was really motivated by a broad um, some scholarship that's coming out on this kind of regulation of intimacies. For example, uh, Giotti Piri's book on sexual states that's looking at the regulation of sexuality and how it's tied to the creation and during and enduring existence of the state itself. So this is really what led me to do the research and write this book. I was seeking to understand how states define themselves based on this um, regulation of polygyny itself. Hmm. Uh, very interesting, of course. And you use uh, a lot of, uh, you know, methodological tools to sort of tell us more about this. So if you could talk a little bit more about your field sites as well as the method that you use in this research. I'd love to, yes. Uh, it was the... They, um, it was a long research project, I will say that for sure. Uh, I realized early on that, um, you know, there were that regulating polygamy or polygyny is very complex. And that, you know, just looking at it in one context was probably not going to be able to capture that complexity in the way that I thought was really important for understanding how states are understanding themselves based on the regulation of this um, forbidden intimacy. So um, I decided to do comparative and transnational research. And I also decided not just to study one type of polygyny, i.e. like among um, Mormon fundamentalists who practice it as part of their religion, um, or among Muslims who also see that as, you know, a, a practice that is um, permitted, some understand it as something that's permitted within the context of Islam. Um, but I wanted to look at more uh, at the macro level to understand what states are doing to regulate it. And so I, I decided, I did a lot of research and decided to look at three countries, France, the United States, and Canada. And I also traveled to Mayot, which is located in the Indian Ocean near Madagascar, and that is a French department. Uh, and so they have a traditional practice of polygyny there. And so all of the um, all of the the people who live on Mayot are citizens of France. 
And so these countries all have a problem with regulating polygynous families, and they have interesting transnational ties in their approach. And uh, so this, as I say, was a very long and lengthy research project. I, um, I conducted research over time from 2010 to 2016, uh, doing you know, ethnographic research as well as 145 interviews with 165 participants. So I was able to really uh, dig in and capture the perspectives of different participants from a range of actors, including individuals living in polygyny, uh, those who had left those, those polygynous relationships, social workers, people working with polygynous populations, government officials, lawyers, and among others, but you know, mainly the people who are really involved with working with these populations so that I could get uh, a perspective on all the different levels of the ways that regulation was taking place and how these families were experiencing that. And so let me just give you a, a brief background on the different countries and the context. Uh, of course, I go into much more depth in the book on this, but in terms of France, um, really polygyny is tied to colonialism and migratory patterns from West Africa. Um, and these are former colonies uh, where men came to work in temporary jobs and brought, eventually were allowed to bring wives over, multiple wives. And this began in the 1970s onwards. Um, it became illegal to live in a polygynous family in 1993. So many of the families living in um, polygynous households in France are from Mali, Senegal, and Mauritania, where it's really an accepted aspect of their traditional culture. Uh, and you know, we, there are no like definitive um, numbers for how many families are living in France in polygyny, but some have estimated around 120,000 individuals. Uh, in Mayotte, where I traveled to um, interview and find out about uh, like how France was regulating it on an uh, you know an island, an overseas department, 95% of its population is mu Muslim. And it is polygyny, and it is a traditional practice um, among among the population. So when um, it became a department in 2011, before that, um, uh, polygyny was began to be prohibited. Um, progressively, uh, some families that had done it traditionally were, uh, but over time, it became um, prohibited. And then turning to the United States and Canada, um, the most visible population practicing, practicing it are Mormon fundamentalists. And um, the most well-known or infamous, we could say, is the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day States, which are based in Southern Utah, and they're really known for placement marriages. Those are marriages assigned by the prophet. Um, women and girls dress in pastel-colored homemade prairie dresses. They have long coiffed hair. But this is just one small portion of the, the people who are practicing, practicing um, polygyny in among Mormon fundamentalists. Uh, a large number there's an estimate between 40 and 60,000 people in the American West, Canada, and Mexico. 
And many of them are independents. They, um, some of them brought, belong to other sects like the Apostolic United Brethren. And that's where this um, show, The Sister Wives, that has Cody Brown, they belong to that particular sect. Uh, these groups tend to denounce underage marriage. They, uh, they have modern dress. Um, they, you know, to their families and how to uh, exist in, uh, you could say, society at that point. So those are a, that's a, a broad background of, of, the, of the research that I did. I think this really helps to put the book in context. My next question too is, uh, you use the phrase forbidden intimacies. So what do you mean by forbidden intimacies and how should these intimacies be studied? Uh, thank you for that question. It's a really good one, of course, because the title is forbidden intimacies. And um, I'm really thinking about forbidden intimacies as a way to capture the idea that some intimacies are seen as um, untoward and that these kinds of intimacies need to be er eradicated, that these there's certain intimacies that are seen as inherently problematic. Um, you know, one forbidden intimacy that has been studied extensively in the last, you know, 20, 30 years is on same gender sexualities. And uh, I as well have, have studied um, this issue. Uh, but I really, in this book, wanted to look at a forbidden intimacy that is seen as really inherently problematic and patriarchal, uh, you know, some would say backward. Um, and what that means um, and what we can learn from studying this um, in thinking about how it is regulated. So um, studying me really allowed me to see how, and I'm putting Western in quotes because I know that there's no real, that, you know, that, that Western is sort of a problematic way of thinking about the division of the ways that nation states are divided in the world, but um, that states govern forbidden in intimacies um, to define themselves really against what we could say is a repudiated racialized other. So that's one of the key um, ways that the book investigates what it means to regulate this forbidden intimacy. In particular, um, I look at the ways that racial othering is central to understanding polygyny as a forbidden intimacy. So um, in this context, you know, polygyny becomes, uh, you know, it's marked as non-Western, cultural, harmful, in contrast to monogamy, which is really understood as universal, unproblematic, um, you know, the healthy way to have a relationship. And uh, again, by, by thinking about this comparatively, um, I'm, I'm sort of able to put into context how this racializ racialization takes place. Some populations, the fundamentalist Mormons, for example, who practice polygyny are white. But it was very interesting to me to, me to think about the ways that even among the populations who are white, because they were practicing polygyny, they often, um, their whiteness was put into question in interesting ways. So legal scholar Martha Ertman uh, has called, has said that, you know, the, the Mormons back in the historical context when the Mormon church was for, first forming in the 1800s um, and it was founded by Joseph Smith, 
that this um, that these these practitioners of polygyny were seen as race traders because they were practicing a type of family that was seen as anathema, basically, to white Christian uh, family ideals. So, uh, so I was very interested in looking at this comparatively and thinking of my goal. Right. So why does polygyny become a form of intimacy that is forbidden in nature? And could it also be understood in a monolithic form? Yeah, that's a, it's a very good question. Again, this is sort of a central um, question that I'm trying to ask in the book. And I would say that, um, you know, one of the reasons that polygyny is forbidden is, you know, is the problematic way that it puts power in the hands of one patriarch, one man, who in some cases, you know, there's plenty of evidence that it can, he can exist. But I found really that, um, you know, the, to, to think about polygyny as just a singular monolithic form was problematic. And this was really interesting to me that I, I, I began as I did this research and, and dug in to see that there are actually, there's not a singular form of harmful polygyny. But there are multiple ways that these polygamies, and I'll use that umbrella term in the plural, are lived in these families. And so we we know as sociologists that social context matters for shaping how families are lived. And in some women suffered greatly. Uh, the families, there was lots of jealousy. There's violence. There's um uh, you know, violence between wives, sometimes violence against the children of other wives, right? And so this is a you know very concerning aspect of the way that some of these families are lived. In other cases, there were, you know, families that really worked well together and women benefited and discussed how they benefited from having sister wives, where they could share uh, working outside the home, they could share household tasks, they could decide, you know, like they could have a life where they knew their children were being taken became part of a larger family conversation where wives would, you know, work together to decide who does what. Uh, certainly, jealousy became was, you know, discussed and it's a part of, you know, the dynamics that come up when you have more than one wife involved. Um, but in these kinds of cases where these families really were working together to make the family work, they talked about how jealousy is just like, you know, it's just a normal part of life. And it's something that you have to talk and work through. Um, so to really understand these multiple polygamies, I conceptualize what I call labyrinth types of love, jealousy and commitment, um, that it's not a simple good, bad dynamic, but that um, that all of these th these types put together can ultimately like a labyrinth that involves complex networks, um, intricate passageways and blind alleys, that it can ultimately um, lead to families that are, you know, able to cope with, are able to like sort of nurture uh, a form of love that allows the family to work together or ultimately, you know, breaks the family apart when it doesn't work well. Uh, but I'm really seeking to ch ch challenge the idea that there's just a simple um, continuum of bad 
polygyny. And then maybe we could say, I talked a little bit about polyamory, which is uh, sort of a more modern form of uh, multiple relationships based on, uh, you know, a, a, um, an openness and uh, consent around um, the practicing of these, these types of love. Um, so I wanted to think about, in fact, some of these different kinds of polygynous families actually also were able to create families that might be seen as very modern in some ways. Um, so this really offers a more complex analysis of emotions overall and shows the ways that approaching polygyny as monolithic is really problematic ultimately. So, uh, so that's, I think, you know, uh, in answer to the question, I think that it is problematic to study polygyny as a monolithic structure. Right. So uh, how are forbidden intimacies used by the state to determine its own tolerance limits? If you could give one or two examples from the context that you have studied. Sure, I'd love to. Yeah. So, you know, I, I thinking about how states um, determine their their tolerance limits. Um, one way that they do this is focusing on polygyny as a way of seeing themselves as sort of a savior that fights against this problematic 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 practice, in particular to save like women, to save women and children. And so so in this way, uh you know, the, the limits of tolerance are around, you know, what we're able to tolerate in order to protect women and children. And again, you know, uh, there are good reasons to think about why you would want to protect women and children in these kinds of relationships. But ultimately, I found, and it was very interesting to look in depth at the ways that these regulations were taking place, because, uh in, in the various contexts, oftentimes the, the consequences of these efforts to you know, put a limit on um, what a state was willing to tolerate had really negative consequences for the women and children that they were supposed to be helping. So for example, in France, um, they instituted a policy to end polygynous families living together. It's called decohabitation or decohabitation. And some secondary wives were then given support if they were living in a, many of these families were living in very small um, apartments that they, you know, sort of cramming in together, you know, up to sometimes 25 people in, you know, maybe a two bedroom or even a one bedroom apartment. Um, and so that, you know, the, of course, you know, having such close quarters could also exacerbate certain kinds of jealousies and problems. And so when after um, France, excuse me, after France instituted this policy to end polygynous families living together, it, um, it really um, was trying to help women by supporting them to get their own apartment um, and bring their children in. So basically, ultimately kind of splitting up the family, but, you know, seeking ways to support the women to become more autonomous, to have um, the skills they need to to maybe work, you know, to work on their own, but also giving them support from the government uh, to be able to survive on their own. Uh, and 
you know, you could see this as, uh, you know, the, the the French state really seeking to make, to, to, um, to help this problem, to find a solution to this problem. But it also required the families, you know, technically to divorce, which also became a, a real issue. Uh, the least to say that, you know, having the state tell families that they need to divorce could be seen as very problematic. Um, and, you know, who actually received the help and how they received the help. I outlined in the book that it was, it, it sometimes took years. Uh, you know, some of the women who got the most support were the most, uh, you know, privileged women in these kinds of polygynous households. And so while, you know, while there was this, this effort to help these women at the same time, it became very problematic in the way that it was um, implemented. And that can be seen most uh, evidently when we look at the ways that one branch of the government was, you know, seeking to provide support for these women, even, you know, yes, they had to divorce and things like that. But, you know, if they were able to go through this process of decohabitation, they were able to set themselves up as sort of a single household um, family where they would receive funding from the government that they could supplement with working. Uh, but another branch of the government began, you know, instituted denying um, these women, especially if they weren't able to decohabit their 10 year, 10 year residence permits. And I found that this was, you know, this was done very unsystematically. And so even when families had decohabitated, oftentimes they still couldn't get their 10 year, like the women, the, the, the secondary wives could not get their 10 year residence permit, uh, mainly because the, the, the government didn't recognize the divorce had taken place. And so if, if the mothers had children, in France, they, you know, the, the families could not be expulsed, but they would only be able to receive a temporary permit that had to be renewed every year at a great cost. So again, you know, this was, there was, um, while the government is seeking to help, there were these punitive, these very um, sort of uh, draconian measures that were taken that left women very vulnerable. And in some cases, completely went underground and lost their identity completely, um, which I discuss in the book as well. So I'll leave it there uh, to, you know, sort of thinking about one particular example. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned a lot of a uh, lot more of this in the book, of course. And the other interesting thing is also the role that national identity plays in shaping the idea of this intimate citizenship. So how do you look at that, you know, contribution of uh, the idea of national identity? Yeah, so the issue of national identity is really interesting um, in the way that it plays out. And this, again, you know, of course, is part of the reason I wanted to conduct a comparative study because each, each nation state sort of had a different way of regulating um, polygyny that allowed them to, in each case, sort of, uh, you know, show how the, you know, the, the, they're in an enlightened state in some ways, right? And so, um, 
this is again where those racialized structures that organize law and policy become important to defining um, who belongs in the nation ultimately. And so, um, you know, there, the, the fact that there's uh, more transnational migration means that states are, are being forced to regulate intimacies that many of them see as offensive. Uh, and so there, you know, and, and, and at the same time, you have what I call these homegrown practices, i.e. like in the United States, where um, Mormon fundamentalists now are, are practicing this as a part of their religion. And, you know, it, it's, it's um, part of a, a, a you know, a part of the population that are citizens in the country. So you have this uh, juxtaposition of uh, you know, different kinds of polygamies that need to be regulated. And, you know, the idea that uh, the government, that the nation state needs to um, forbid these kinds of intimacies uh, highlights, you know, often highlights how states see themselves as enlightened as you know, different from what they define as barbaric. And I think one of the best examples of this is in Canada. And in 2015, the conservative government at that time relied on gendered and racialized narratives of culture and violence to adopt what it called the Zero Tolerance for Barbaric Cultural Practices Act. And this was a bill that um, focused on polygyny, but also on forced marriage and honor killing as cultural issues uh, that said, you know, that it's not allowed in Canada. And it, it's very interesting because all of those practices had already been banned. They were they were not allowed, but they they created this law as a way to focus on these practices um, to talk about, um, you know, yes, we're going to do all this great work to, you know, to make sure this isn't happening. But the result in many ways was sort of a xenophobic um, uh, you know, particularly with the title focus that stoked anti-immigrant fears around what, you know, what is being portrayed as less civilized cultures overall. And, you know, so again, we can see the way that uh, forbidding certain kinds of intimacies, uh, you know, marking an intimacy as cultural perpetuates structural inequalities based on racialization, racialization and stigma. Uh, so I'll quote religious scholar Lori Beeman here, who says, a desire to demonize the patriarchal, patriarchal practices of the illiberal other really can fuel these anti-polygamy campaigns to deflect attention away from inegalitarian practices in mainstreamist society. So again, uh, by looking at the other it, uh, it it deflects attention away from the you know problematic practices, gender inequality, all the kinds of things that take place in societies across the world. So um, I, you know that is one way I think that uh, national identity is very important. And each of the countries I studied sort of had a a different way of defining themselves against polygyny. Mm -hmm. So to uh, just go back a little historically, um, what role do you think colonialism and then, of course, racism as well in contemporary times play in structuring regulations against these forbidding intimacies? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, I touched on it a little bit in my discussion of the different sites. And, you know, in all of the sites that I studied, colonial, colonialism and racism did play a strong role in the ways that polygyny as a forbidden intimacy is regulated. And so I've, I've already talked a little bit about France and the fact that many of the, the families that are practicing polygyny are from former French colonies, Mali, Senegal, Mauritania. Um, and in the book, I provide a history of colonialism in North and West Africa, specifically looking at the ways that polygyny was dealt with and the racist understandings of populations based on the ideas that the idea that they practiced it. So oftentimes, even as the, the practice itself, like for example, in North Africa among certain populations was declining, it was seen as a way to regulate who could vote, who could not vote, who could be seen as um, desirable for citizenship. All of these things over time then shape how polygyny is understood today. And I argue in the book that the same is really true in the United States and Canada, that in the 1700s and 1800s, the regulation of polygyny um, originally focused on native populations that practice it. So this settler, settler colonialism that took place in Canada and the United States also really shaped the ways that the laws ultimately uh, were understood and implemented and the laws, you know, that uh, in both Canada and the United States were directly related to the fear of Mormon fund or of Mormons practicing um, polygyny, as that had become sort of a key aspect of um, their religion at one time. Later on, as I discuss in the book, the mainstream Mormon Church actually rejected the practice of what they call plural marriage. Uh, but then the, that's when the fundamentalists took it up because they saw it as a, a very important tenet of being able to get into um, the kingdom of heaven, basically. So um, in Canada, for example, um, recently there have been a, there were two prosecutions, but before that, for for polygamy as a standalone charge, but before that, one of the only um, charges, even though the law itself was uh, really more concerned about Mormons. And in fact, when the law was first written, it even had Mormon, uh, the Mormons written into the law as, as a problem. Uh, the one man who was charged with polygyny was a native man who had two wives. And so he was put into prison um, for that. So again, the book is seeking to provide an overall history of this of the ways that colonialism and racism shape the present ways that laws are implemented and the ways that polygyny is regulated. Mm -hmm. uh, so how does one really conceptualize lived polygamy? I mean, what does sociological research on polygamy tell us about this kind of family form? Yeah, so, you know, the research is really interesting and complex, right? It's It's fairly mixed in some ways. It shows that uh, it, it shows that in some cases polygyny can be very harmful for women and children, and for even for you know some men. Um, but the, the the research also you know is mixed, right? And so 
Some shows that there are poor mental and physical health outcomes, uh, that some many polygynous families face food, food insecurity. Uh, and then there's research that shows that so, much of this is based on social context. For example, one study disaggregated the data from um, you know, an overall study that looked at the harms of polygyny at the, at the national level in Africa and looked at specifically at the village level, finding that it was you know, really practiced among some of the more vulnerable populations. And that when you, in fact, disaggregated the data, you, it was found that children and fathers, when they were co-resident, had actual bet actually had better health outcomes for children, had better food security in comparisons to the families that weren't living in polygyny that were, you know, on, at, at at the same income level, so or similar income level. And it also found that in many cases, polygyny led to more property rights for women who um, depend on men for resources. So, you know, my research as well, you know, found that social context is very important for how polygyny is lived itself. I'll, I'll take Mayotte, for example. And, you know, when I was uh, doing the research in Mayotte, I heard from many people that women really suffer in living in these polygynous households, that many don't choose it, that the men, um, you know, take on separate wives, not necessarily with the women's consent. This is really problematic. Uh, but at the same time, even so, there were women that I uh, interviewed uh, that talked about how they had fallen in love with a man that was married and they didn't want him to divorce and that he, they, they completely supported their polygynous household. In particular, I interviewed a, a mayor of... Um, of one of the districts in Mayotte. And uh, she discussed the ways that, you know, that she felt it really important, you know, to maintain her polygynous household, even though in the past she had been very against polygyny. She had been very, um, she had felt that it, it does harm women. So, you know, it, it shows the complexities of the way that different people deal with it. And um, I also, you know, interviewed younger generations of women that said, you know, that they actually, you know, some were completely against it. Some said that they would consider it, uh, you know, if if it allowed them to maintain sort of a more independent lifestyle that they wanted to have, um, they wouldn't have the husband in their household all the time. It was to them a way of um, having, you know, uh, a family that gave them an interest in Lisa more independence, which seems to be very paradoxical. And we think about polygyny as being very much about taking away women's um, independence and making them dependent on a patriarch. So I, I think that, um, you know, that this is a complex phenomena that we need to, uh, to research and think about uh, with great care, and particularly when we think about it in terms of regulation and what the consequences of that regulation is for the families themselves and, and what it means for, you know, these families to be criminalized or forbidden 
uh, who sometimes end up, um, you know, living underground as a way to try to protect their their families. Last question, Melanie. How do you think agency is negotiated amongst the women, you know, who live in a polygynous family? Yeah, thank you for that question, because that is really a key question, I think, that um, motivates and animates the entire book in many ways. Um, you know, and it really animates the debate around whether polygyny itself is harmful. And so in chapter four, I really take this on directly, thinking about the ways that gender, power, and agency are lived in polygyny. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to work through, like, well, how is, you know, polygyny itself inherently harmful to women? And, you know, interestingly, you know, we, I heard from somebody like Samantha, who is a plural wife, and she tells me that, um, you know, she's, she was very emphatic that women in plural marriages are not victims, they're not brainwashed. They're incapable, they're capable of making intelligent choices. And she herself had married into a plural family at age 18. She had decided that that's what she wanted to do. And through her, uh, the group is uh, Centennial Park. She was part of this group that's in Southern Utah where they, um, where women can uh, sort of talk. They could decide to a certain degree who they want to marry. And so she said, I had no way to comprehend all that polygamy or polygyny could be when I was making that choice when she was talking about it during an interview that she really felt that, you know, it was completely the right choice for her. And, and then I, you know, I, I interviewed Amelia, who told me that, you know, after leaving her plural marriage and the religion that required it you know, for her, it was, you know, that she's a Mormon fundamentalist and it's seen as a necessary, you know, it's seen plural marriage is seen as very important for um, attaining the highest levels of the celestial kingdom in their religion. She felt that she had really been brainwashed to believe that this was the only choice she could make and that, you know, and, and that, you know, it was the only choice where she could remain in her religion and her community. And she says, that's all you know. Um, you know, for her, it was really problematic. So these two contradictory positions and perspectives really, I think, speak to um, different ways that agency is negotiated in uh, polygyny and that, you know, that it's not, there's not a simple answer around women's agency, that it's not, um, you know, either women have it or don't have it. I mean, clearly there are women who very emphatically state that they have it. Um, so really in the book, I'm I'm seeking to complicate, uh, you know, uh, again, we could say it's monolithic ideas about agency that, uh, that say that, you know, uh, that it's one, either you're, you have agency, you have choice, or you don't have choice. Uh, and I take kind of a step back and say, well, look at, you know, the way that governments are regula regulating it by understanding it as either a choice or not a choice uh, means that women's agency becomes suspect in a way that, again, complicates and allows governments to uh, 
to regulate it so that women are left even more vulnerable in many ways because their agency becomes suspect that it it's like you know you have to criminalize it you have to punish it or you have to make it so that you're trying to eradicate it and make it go away which pushes many of these women to live their lives in secrecy um in some cases where they they don't even in france for example many of them lose they don't even have their own identity, that they take on the identity of the, the wife that is legally recognized. So there's there are ways where, um, you know, having, you know, making women's agency suspect itself uh, is really problematic. And uh, so I think one of the, the important points in this book is just thinking about how agency itself is very complicated and really depends so much on social context and that we have to be able to theorize that in a way that um, ensures that states can't just understand agency in a in a suspect way to regulate it uh, that will ultimately result in women becoming more vulnerable. Well, thank you so much for the response as well as for this very engaging conversation. It was absolutely a pleasure to listen to you talk about your new book. And I wish the book all success and I hope more and more people read it. Thank you once again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.